This is where, like, the films of, like, the alt... Whether you think they're, like... Whether they're your favorite films or whatever, these are, like, just well put together, some just classic directors, classic people at the height of their powers. Yeah, it's... There's a lot of discussions we had in here because some of these haven't aged well. Sure. There's some controversy surrounding a couple of these. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to the animated film on this little section. Yes. And we're going to probably have a long debate on that. Oh, my gosh. And... <laughs> Um, there are comedies on this list. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the controversial comedy, controversial I would say. comedies, and maybe one of the best films ever made. At the top, like towards the top of this, yes. like a little ten. We'll get to that. We'll get yeah. to that. So this is gonna be a really nice section. Yes. All right. Let's just jump right in. Number. By the way, we're talking about thirty-one through forty um, this week, and number forty is *The Sound of Music* from nineteen sixty-five, directed by Robert Wise, who we also talked about a couple pods earlier. He also directed *West Side Story*. Um, written by Ernest Lemon, based on the stage musical by Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss, not Russell Crowe. I, th- I read that um, wrong the first time. I was like, oh. <laughs> well, he's, yeah, he's been doing this for a long, longer than I thought. No. Um, stars Julie Andrews, Christopher Plummer, Eleanor Parker, Richard Hayden. Nominated for 10 Oscars, won five. Um, it won for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and Best uh, Score. It was also nominated for, Julie Andrews was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role. Peggy Wu was Supporting Actress. Uh, cinematography, art direction, and costume design. Best picture that year um, was The Sound of Music 1, um, A Thousand Clowns, Darling, Dr. Zhivago, and Ship of Fools. A Thousand Clowns sounds like a horror movie. It probably is. I have I had not heard of it. But, Dr. Zhivago um, I've heard. Ship of Fools mm-hmm. I've heard about. Dr. Zhivago is one that's been redone like 12 times. Yeah. I think like, there are like 13 different versions. Yeah, because it was originally like one of those silent films mm-hmm. that's been remade. There was one like... Ten years ago, they had like Kira Knightley and some people in it. I don't know. I I watched really? it. I watched it for a class in high school. Really? I don't know. I I don't know what. Really? It, I did not know. It this. was either Kira Knightley or an actress like her. I don't okay. remember. Um. Anyway, but uh, I I also said here the hills are alive. The hills are alive with they, the sound with of music. the sound of music. Uh, um, doe, a deer, a female deer. Anyway, I'm not going to go through all that. Yeah, we, I don't think we need to go through this. No. Um. All time soundtrack. <laughs> it's, it's um. Like Julie Andrews. She Mary so, Poppins was the year before. My God! And then she also worked with Hitchcock a few later, a few years later in Tom, Torn Curtain. She like in the '60s, she was like knocking them out, working with the best directors in the yeah, game. She, uh, she has the best voice maybe of all time. I love her voice. She's incredible she's in like, this movie. Uh, Mary Poppins, I kind of put it in my notes. Like, should be on this list somewhere, maybe. Probably. It was yeah. one of uh, Disney's first forays into live action as and well. And they had live action and animation, which mm-hmm. was like groundbreaking at the time. Sure. But Julie Andrews is so good in this movie. Mm-hmm. Christopher Plummer being somewhat relatively young. Yeah. Like in his, I think he's late 20s, early 30s in this movie. Yeah. And he, I mean, he aged well. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. like, look at him there, you're like, he doesn't look that much different than he does now. Yeah. And, he's, and Julie Andrews is, I mean, everybody, the Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer both aged very well. Yeah. And, um... Christopher Plummer's a guy, and we were talking a little before we recorded here. He he's a guy that's just been doing it at a high level for decades and decades. He was the oldest Oscar winner in a competitive category um, when he won 
in uh, 2010 um, for the beginners at age 82. And he just recently, um, I think one of his most recent roles was um, uh, All, All the, the Money in the World, world replacing yeah. Kevin Spacey, which he, he's really he good got at... nominated for an Oscar for it. Uh, the movie's kind of mediocre. He's but actually really good. I think it. he's fine. I like Wahlberg and Michelle Williams. Um, so I, uh, for this week, I kind of um, uh, looked up some, I guess, fun facts about um, each of these films. So I'll okay. share. I will share. Um, Julie Andrews sang supercalifragilisticexpialidocious to the children in the cast to entertain them between shootings since Mary Poppins hadn't yet been released. Christopher Plummer did not like working with Julie Andrews huh. on this set. Um, he said he he referred to it as the sound of mucus and likened working with Julie Andrews to being hit over the head with a big Valentine's Day card every day. Um, they have since made up. I'm believe. assuming because like the, there there have been pictures of them like hanging out and like yeah. Also, I I would imagine Julie Andrews is just like a ball of energy. Yeah, she's a ray of sunshine. And if you're just yes. like Christopher Plummer was like a serious actor. Yeah, he's like I I'm too I'm too big for this. Um, also I I had to mention that um the classic um uh, gif of Christopher Plummer tearing the Nazi flag in half is an yeah. all timer. Um. But also, this film is just an all-time musical, and I think that a lot of people have a very big adoration for it. I think people put the West Side Story above this, but I would put this sure. above the West Side Story if I'm being I think, really honest. I, I would probably say that as well. I think that um, they're both they're both kind of they're both long about both about three hours um, or close to it, and I I also think I think Sound of Music is an easier watch. Yeah, because you're not like you're not looking at it going like, man, this is kind of dated, which this movie is a little younger than the other one. But sure. Like, you look at um, West Side Story and you're like, man, people wearing brown face. I don't. Yeah, and with Sound of Music, I unless I'm missing something, I don't really think there's much of a controversy with this one. I mean, like they're against the Nazis. Yeah, <laughs> that's not really a hot take. <laughs> yeah, not a hot take. I mean, but it's it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. It's um. Yeah, I'm 40, I think, is a good spot for it, Sure. honestly. Um, it really sucks that this is kind of like Julie Andrews' only film. I think it's the first time we've talked about Christopher Plummer, too. Yeah. Which, that's kind of a shame. Both these guys are, both these people are, like, really important to their craft. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, I kind of like you mentioned, I think Mary Poppins um, could, could, be, could sneak in here. Mm-hmm. Um, classic performance from Dick Van Dyke as well in that yep. one. Um, yeah, Sound of Music is is really good. This is also a film that, like, which is not the case with a lot of these. I th- Sound of Music's one that really ca- is is good for everybody. Yeah, it's not it's not pandering to children, but it has songs for the children. Julie Andrews is just a really good person, period, and, mm-hmm. but in a movie. And she sings, I mean, she sings a lot, and she's really good at it. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's a good movie. Sure. And I mean, it it has it. It's just one of those films, also that just feels classic. I know that shot of when he's he's singing "The Hills Are Alive" with the sound of music. That pan on the hill yeah. is one that's used in film montages for everything. It's also made fun of like a crap time. <laughs> that's true. There was a spoof movie, I think, in like the '80s, where like the camera just like runs into the actress <laughs> or something. I think it was a. I think that pretty sure that was like a. Mel Brooks movie or something. Oh, probably. I bet. Um, yeah. We also have established on this pod though, if you're parodied. That also means you're you you've made it. Yeah, this is a classic film for a reason. I think it's perfect where it's, it is right now. Yeah. Top fifty, number forty. Top forty, yeah. Top forty. I think that's good. Yeah, I I'm good with that. Um, 
Again, the hills are alive. Uh, moving on to number 39, Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb from 1964, directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Stanley Kubrick, Terry Southern, and Peter George, based on the uh, book by Peter George, Red Alert. It stars Peter Sellers, George C. Scott, Sterling Hayden, Slim Pickens, and a, and a young James really Earl young Jones. Really young James Earl Jones. I, I, had to, I think I had to rewind a couple of times to make well, sure that like, was him. It, like, his voice isn't as deep like as you remember it. So, like, you, yeah. you like, had to rewind and go, oh, that is James Earl Jones. Yeah. He's, really, he's really young in this movie. He's also in this movie very briefly, but I had to shout him out. Yeah. Um, nominated for four Oscars. Yeah. Um, it was. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best mm-hmm. Actor for Peter Sellers, uh, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay. Did not win any though. Did not win any because um, Kubrick and the Academy had a thing. Yes, so. of course. Um, Best Picture that year, My Fair Lady won. Uh, Beckett, Zorba the Greek, Mary Poppins, and Doctor Strangelove. Um, inducted the National Film Registry in '89. Uh, I put down. I think it's one of the greatest satires ever made. This is my favorite Kubrick film. It's up there. It's probably top three for me. Like, Peter Sellers is so good in this He plays movie. three characters. And they're so totally different. Oh, yes. Famously, Kubrick does not like people to ad-lib. Yeah. Seller, Peter Sellers was the only guy he let ad-lib. And Peter ever. Sellers was also pissed because he did, because Kubrick is also classically, he, he wants multiple takes. And Sellers would only settle for like three or four takes. Yeah, and he, he was just confused as to why he needed to do it more than a couple times. Yeah. And also... um. Peter Sellers, uh, he's paid a million dollars, which is 55% of the film's budget, um, which... Well, it shows how big of a star Peter Sellers was, yeah. really. I mean, Peter Sellers, I think, is regarded as one of the greatest comedian actors of all time. Yeah, he is. He's like yeah. one of, He is one of the funniest actors. He's also in uh, Inspector Clouseau. Inspector Clouseau in the Pink Panther movies. He is, at this point, he's just kind of, he's just really well known. He's at the top of his game. He's, I mean, he's so good in this movie. George C. Scott. Oh, he is incredible. He's so good in this movie. You kind of see, like, when he plays Patton later in his life, you're like, I understand why sure. they picked him to play this role. Um, it is just so funny. It's so it's remarkable how poignant it is in today's climate. Yes. I guess, yeah, especially relations with Russia. Yeah, George C. Scott, um, he... What's so great about his performance is he is dialed up way more than he maybe should be, but it works. Yeah. It works so well. I mean, there's points, there's even a point where he just completely trips and falls in his face, and that wasn't even scripted, but they kept it in the movie because it was funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, like, my favorite line from this entire movie is, gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Yeah, it's, like, a, one of my favorite lines. That's the lines. classic one. That's the classic one. Yeah, it's, like, my favorite line from the entire movie. And Peter Sellers, I will say, I I thought, <laughs> the funny thing was, so I didn't know he played multiple roles going into this. Yeah, I, I, I didn't I know looked... that he played the uh, old, his, the president. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize he played the president till later. Well, so I saw, so I just I just watched this film um, recently for the first time. Really? And yeah, cause I, it was one, so it was one that I had heard about forever. Mm-hmm. It's one that I had been meaning to get to. And then finally, when we did this, I thought, finally, I can watch this. I looked, and the first time the president, um, President Merkin Muffley, which is a great name, yeah. um, came on screen, I, I'm like, he looks like Peter Sellers. Yeah. But is that Peter Sellers? And then I like I had to pause it and look it up, and I'm like, oh, he is, he's president, he's Dr. Strangelove, and he is <laughs> group captain Lionel Mandrake. Yeah, like, they have him as a British, I love that he's a British royal airman. Yes. And that, like, the base is getting attacked by, like, commandos, and he's just sitting there like, I don't know what to do, because <laughs> Because the uh, commander in this is, like, trying to take over the base, try to take care of the bomb. 
he sent the like they're all connected because the there's a the plane where James Earl Jones is mm-hmm. and Slim Pickens. And Slim Pickens. There's the president's room, which it it has the the Russian consulate, and has all that in there. And the then George had, C. Scott keeps trying to tell the president is is a double agent, but he won't believe him until the very end. Yeah, no, it's uh, it it is a bunch of nonsense, but like it makes sense at the same time. Yeah, because it's like they're fighting over this thing that's probably inevitable. Yeah, and it's like in the end doesn't really matter because they all get blown up. Yeah, 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 that's true. Um. It's like that classic um, uh, line from Cool Hand Luke. Um, Gentlemen, this is what we call a failure to communicate. <laughs> yeah, like, like all these things happen. Like like the bomb gets dropped, period. They mm-hmm. can't stop it. It happens <laughs> yeah, anyway. And Slim Pickens is on it, too. On top of it. And it's like and it's making fun of all these films from the 50s. They're trying to get you scared of the bomb. And like the, the, the Russians are trying to get you. It's like, no, the Americans started this. Well, it also... Uh, led to actual changes in policy to ensure that the events depicted could never occur in real life. Yeah. So, like, people took this film very seriously, too. It, I wonder if, like, I don't know if it just was, like, a loophole that someone saw and started writing about it. Yeah, I don't know. But, again, this is also kind of a different turn for um, Kubrick, I would say. Yeah, Kubrick kind of could do whatever the hell he wanted at this yeah. point, and he decided to do this... Which is super weird for him. Yeah. He doesn't do a comedy. Exactly. Also, this short of a film, too. Yeah, it's like maybe an so hour I, 20. I think it's right at an hour and a half, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but either yeah. way. It's it's short for Kubrick. But, yeah. like, the fact that it's still really funny and that he still gets his point across on how ridiculous this all is. Mm-hmm. In a very Kubrickian way and yeah. all this. It's so well made. It's sure. one of my. It's like my favorite Kubrick film for a reason. Yeah. Because like it's not to the point where you see like The Shining where everything's meticulously a certain way. This is just like, I want to make something funny. <laughs> I make something that's really important, but it's really funny. Yeah. And I mean, all these years later, it still holds up. Yeah. And it's so important. <laughs> I, yeah. It's very important. Um, in just the comedic genre and just war films in general. Uh, Thirty nine. I think it's a good spot. Yeah, I mean, I, you can, you can argue, I could argue it should be higher, but I think it's fine at 39. Yeah, top 40s. No, I, no complaints there from me. Uh, moving on here to uh, number 38, Treasure of the Sierra Madre from 1948, directed and written by John Huston, um, one of the all-time greats, uh, based on the B. Travin novel. Uh, stars Humphrey Bogart, Walter Huston. His father. Uh, that. And um, uh, Tim Holt. I, so I knew they were related. I yeah. didn't know how. Yeah. So the father? Yeah, okay. father, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, he's great in this film. Yeah. Um, uh, nominated for four Oscars. Uh, it won three. Uh, it won for uh, Walter Houston, won for Best Actor Supporting Role, uh, and John Houston won for Best Director and Best Screenplay. It was also nominated for Best Picture. And best Picture that year, Hamlet won. Um, and then the other nominees were uh, Johnny Belinda, The Red Shoes, Snake Pit, and, of course, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I mean, I have not seen Hamlet, so I really can't comment on that. I didn't know there was a Hamlet it's, in 1948. It's uh, Shakespeare. I don't know. No, Shakespeare's um, incredible. Yeah, but. so I mean, uh, inducted to the National Film Registry in 1990. Walter Houston, I just wanted to point out, is incredible as oh, yeah. Howard. He's by far the craziest of the bunch. Yeah. But he also is, like, their ticket out of there, basically. Yeah. Ticket out of the mountain. I mean... Like, crazy prospectors became a thing because of this movie. Yeah. And also, the famous line from this movie is, badges, we don't need no stinking badges. Sure. And he shoots through his hat. Yeah. Yeah. You could, 
it's such a good movie because it's like this story of treasure that may not may or may not be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bogart's character is this kind of this down as luck kind of guy. Yeah, he's a drunk lost in Mexico. Oh yeah. And so like they pick him up to go do this thing because they need they need a body. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. They need someone to help him uh-huh. help them out. Yeah, because um uh, it was um Curtin had gone down um down the mountain to check out. Or, or I think maybe to pick something up or drop off some pelts. And Cody was the other guy that asked him if they were looking for gold, and he ended up back there, and then they got in the firefight. Um, yeah, kind of Curtin's fault yeah. that um, all that happened and that Cody eventually died as well, got shot in the neck, I believe. Also, I, one thing I have seen regarding this movie is I've seen multiple places that people regard this as Humphrey Bogart's best role. He could definitely say it could it is. Do you think would you think that? I mean, there's a movie up on this little section we have here, which I might argue you could argue and yeah. there's a movie higher, really high up this list we could also say. Yeah. But this is kind of those are iconic. This is I think this is maybe his best role. I think he shows his mo his uh widest emotional range in this role. Yeah, because he he's a drunk in the beginning of this. Then he's paranoid. Then he's just angry and tries to kill everybody. Yeah, and then he thinks he kills Curtin, but then that's not the case. But also, you can see, like, you kind of get back to Lord of the Rings. You kind of see where, like, Smeagol and Gollum have their, like, because he talks himself. Mm-hmm. You can kind of see, like, how this kind of made that scene work. Yeah. Yeah. I and thought about that. Yeah. Bogart's amazing in this movie. Sure. Um, Walter Houston's incredible. Um, yeah, like, there's a lot of stories of this, like, John Houston and, like, John Houston and Bogart just would go out and get drunk and, like, come mm-hmm. to set the next day. Kind of similar to African Queen. Yeah, like, I mean, they were good friends, so they just yeah. go out and, like, drink till they want to, like, yeah. like, three in the morning and then come to set at five. I mean, I, I think it the results were there. I mean, um, it's still, I mean, it's a classic <laughs> for a reason. Yeah, and this is just a, this is just a really fun um, adventure film. Also... I, I thought it was interesting. Like they, I didn't know where they were gonna go after. Um, they they kind of they kind of find the gold relatively quickly. Yeah, because you're like, oh, it's gonna be this long travel, and then you're like, oh, they get that's the gold yeah. already. Like they find the gold in the first hour, I believe. Yeah, and then it's all about. Honestly, the more intriguing part is about just holding on to it. And they're descending to madness basically because they don't trust each other. Yes, because they're all they're all outlaws in the West basically at this point. They're mm-hmm. all people in the West, so we don't trust anybody. And also, pretty much everything Walter Houston says to be to beware of ends up happening. I mean, there's there's a fa- I mean, there's a line in there where he says, um, "Be careful of the bandits because um, I mean they'll just they'll just uh, rob you for the shoes off your feet." And what happens later? They rob him for the shoes off his feet. <laughs> I mean, also. I think the most point. I mean, one of the most important shots I think in this film is the last shot, hmm. where the gold mixes mixes with the sand. It's like, did it really matter? Yeah, that's Cause, true. Because like they they all kill each other. If they had literally gotten to the finish line and split up, they wouldn't have gotten robbed. They would like, out, like these guys would be dead. Really, it really just comes down to that trust, like you're mm-hmm. saying. And uh, there's a there's a great line from uh, Tim Holt. At the end, it said, you know, the worst ain't so bad when it finally happens. Not half as bad as you figure it will be beforehand. Because, like we mentioned that um, uh, Dobbs is paranoid. Um, but at the end of the day, they all kind of are. 
I mean, they all are paranoid because towards the end, no one trusts each other. Sure. No one likes each other. That's true. Because in the beginning, they're kind of shaky, and then they, they well, also they, Dobbs and Curtin, they start out the film as this like incredible duo and this quick friendship, yeah. and they both they both got um, screwed over by that other guy who they were working for. Um, they really developed this tight friendship, and then all of a sudden, when um, uh, Dobbs kind of oversteps. And um and hides it hides his goods and really just doesn't just chooses really for honestly I don't even know the real reason um outside of just pure paranoia and um I guess arrogance in a way it really just uh, breaks up that friendship and then just the trio in general um, yeah I mean just it's so good <laughs> it's, it is incredible I this is another one that I have been meaning to watch for years and I finally got around to it and. It's one of my favorite Bogey films. Yeah, Bogart, I mean, he's an icon for a reason. And like you kind of alluded to, this may be his best role. Mm-hmm. But there's, I mean, I need to rewatch Casablanca. And he wasn't even nominated for it. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. He won for African Queen. I'm just like, that's not that good. You know, if, if we've learned anything, it's that the Academy does not know what they're doing in the moment. <laughs> no, like the fact that like Charlie Chaplin didn't win an Academy Award his lifetime kind of blows my mind. Yeah. It didn't win one until he got his honorary. Yeah. It, it really, it feels like it takes the Academy at least 20 years to, like, figure out they screwed up. Like Peter O'Toole never winning one? Yeah. Or, I mean, the classic Scorsese or any of any of the any of the many um, actors or directors that, uh, that really uh, were kind of neglected and disrespected from the Academy. But anyway... Moving on here to number 37, The Best Years of Our Lives from 1946, directed by William Wyler, written by Robert E. Sherwood, uh, based on the McKinley Cantor novel, stars Myrna Loy from The Thin Man fame, um, Frederick Mark, or March, um, Dana Andrews, Teresa Wright, nominated for nine Oscars and won eight of them. Uh, it won. Uh, it also won an honorary award uh, for Harold Russell. Um, it says for bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans through his appearance in the best years of our lives. It won Best Picture. Frederick March won Best a- Best Lead Actor. Um, uh, Harold Russell won for uh, Supporting Actor, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Film Editing, and um, uh, Best Score. And is also nominated for Best Sound. It was inducted to the National Film Registry also in 1989. And uh, best picture that year was Best Years of Our Lives 1, uh, Henry V, It's a Wonderful Life, The Razor's Edge, and The Yearling. Mm-hmm. Um, so some classic films in there. Wow. This film kind of yeah. surprised me. Yeah, it, it's surprising that a film like this was made mm-hmm. right after the war. That's what I was thinking, right, right after, after World war. war II. I thought this was later, like even made in the 50s, and then I checked, like, 46? That's yeah, it was, early. like, right after. Because William Wyler, like, Served in World War Two, mm-hmm. he did films for for uh, the War Department, and so he came back and he, he saw what war did to the soldiers that he was yeah. filming, and he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. "I need to tell the story." Sure. And this film is amazing. Yeah. And it's so interesting that they made a film about PTSD before we knew what PTSD was. Yes. Because these guys come home, they're not the same, and I think that's so important to. To like a war story, sure. Because now it's like you see it all the time, like Born the Fourth of July. Even heck, we even talk about Deer Hunter. Deer Hunter, but like this film kind of set that standard for like you go to war, you kill people, you do all these things. You're in war for a couple years. You come back home, you are not the same person. Yeah, 
And I love it even how they, they can communicate that and maybe one shot, but they don't actually really show what happened during the war. It's all about well, their conversations. Um, within the first half hour, I believe, Fred has that nightmare. Yeah, they all break. I mean, there's a, I mean, there's breakdowns. I mean, there. Homer, Homer comes back with hooks for hands. Yeah. I mean, it's just really, Homer definitely has um, the most obvious, um, basically, he, he left something there. Yeah, he's, but he is, I think he's the only one who has physical. Physic, sure, he, physical. He, he, um, Fred, physical. Fred um, has the probably clearest form of PTSD with the nightmares. And also just, he mentions how he was married to his wife for less than 20 days. And clearly they did not know each other as well as um, uh, they thought. You find out that his wife had been extorting his military benefits and complaint, which is just completely despicable in my eyes. Um and, and just the fact that she's complained that they don't have any money when he, she's been spending all of his hard-earned um, yeah. cash from the war. Um, and then you have Al, who missed years of his um, uh, years of his children growing up. This film is so ahead of its time, mm-hmm. but also dealt just with issues that, like, veterans saw this movie and were like, I identify with all this. Yes. Because the divorce rate goes skyrockets after this movie. Yes. Like, because there's even a line in that they missed the best years of their lives because they were at war and they were apart. Yeah, like yeah. those years, like married for 20 days, those like first couple years when you're married is so important mm-hmm. because you're developing that relationship as a partner. Sure. And so she's like, I have no one else to do. There's all this money. I can spend all this money. Mm-hmm. But it's like that was a save for him, for them when he got back, if he got back. Yeah, that, that's a huge thing too, if. And they all three did make it back. Um, Homer, uh, he he doesn't even want to go home at first because he doesn't think that um, Wilma, his uh, girlfriend, will even love him still. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of insecurity there for him. Uh, Fred can't really get a steady job and ends up back at the drugstore, but eventually defending Homer gets fired from there. And then Al, he's brought back to the bank. But part of that, not only because he was there before the war, but also they say that they need somebody who can relate to these veterans who are applying for loans and really trying to adjust to the real world. And there's a guy in there that on on one of his first days that comes in and he has no collateral. But because Al can relate to him and empathize with him, he gives him the loan anyway because he trusts him. And he even says that throughout his time on the battlefield, he could tell when when somebody was legit, basically, or not. And he he saw... um, in in that person that uh, he could trust them and so he has a bit of a drinking problem but he's a good guy deep down um i think all three of these guys are good guys they're all good people i mean like they're just damaged yes not physically some i mean two of them are not physically but you can tell that there's something that happened yeah to them and the fact that Wayne myler directed this film amazingly it's kind of those films that i feel like gets lost in the shuffle Yes, I agree. I'm like, so like I'm so like when you talk about war films, they don't talk about everything that happens after. Like the only film I th- can think of is like Born on the Fourth of July. Mm. People talk about. Yeah, this film should be on like the cusp of like you need to watch this film. This I'm gonna be honest with you, I had not heard of this film before we did this. I've this. heard I heard of it before because William Myler was um, he had done some other films I'd known. He'd okay. Done, William Myler had, uh, I mean, also the Five Came Back. Okay. That documentary that's on Netflix about sure. the five, about like John Ford, William Wyler, Frank Capra, and George Stevens and John Houston. Sure. They all served for the War Department, and they 
kind of tell, like, a lot of these guys make more films when they come back. Yeah. So, William Wilder, he did a film, I think he did Memphis Bell, mm-hmm. which is about, like, you, if you survive 26 missions in a B-52, you get sent home. Oh, okay. And, the like, I believe it's William Wilder. I think it is. Yeah, it's William Wilder. Okay. Okay. And the success rate of that happening, Memphis Bell survived that long. He was with them on their last three missions. So he saw what war did to people and saw that, you know, you lose friends. You lose those people. And that this film kind of was his way of showing, okay, I'm going to show you what I saw and I'm showing what's happening right now in your own hometown. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. William Wyler also is a guy who we need to talk about as one of the greatest directors of all time. He is... John Ford, you mentioned, has those four best directing Oscars, but William Wyler won three. Yeah, William Wyler, I'm looking him up. He also cause... directed Ben-Hur. Yeah. Um, he, uh, I, again, I, I feel like, kind of like you mentioned, the best years of our lives, um, really, yeah, like you mentioned, just that sense of loss, I, I feel like they're kind of just going through the motions throughout this film. There's also that, uh, that kind of love triangle between Fred and Peggy um, that, Honestly, kind of, I don't know if ruins is too strong of a word, but it also kind of uh, negatively impacts, for lack of a better term, Fred and Al's relationship, and that's never mended. Yeah. There's always kind of an awkward rift between them, even at Homer's wedding at the end, uh, which I think, I've heard this on other podcasts, for some reason, a lot of the greatest movies of all time have a wedding in there somewhere. Yeah. It's always just a good plot device Yeah, to gather everybody, um, whether it's at the beginning or end of a film. But anyway, Best Years of Our Lives, uh, incredible film. Yeah. Um, William Wyler also directed Roman Holiday. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Miniver, which I think is an underrated film, which mm-hmm. is about how Britain felt through in World War II. Um, he did The Westerner, which is uh, one of Gary Cooper's westerns. Weathering Heights. Mm-hmm. Dead End, which was a ripoff of a film higher up on this list. Um, he did Big Country, Ben Hur, and he kind of did just whenever he wanted to. He can kind of do whatever he wanted. Sure. Um, Multiple Best Picture nominees in that in yeah. that group. That group. Yeah. I mean, William Wyler. He. I, I feel like I don't, I don't know. If disrespect is the right word, but he's definitely one of those underlooked guys. I think when we talk about best directors. Yeah, I mean, also. He's, I'm pretty sure he escaped Germany, like Nazi Germany. I'm pretty sure it was him. Oh. I'm looking at, yeah, he's one, uh, yeah. He was born, uh, he, was, he was a Jew mm-hmm. in Germany and is basically escaped in like the 1920s. Oh, okay. When anti-Semitism kind of was growing and decided to make films because he, uh, he had a relationship with one of the Warner Brothers. Okay, gotcha. To the Warner, I think, well, both of them, duh. The Warner Brothers and um, just started making movies. And this is really good. This is honestly, it could be higher. Yeah. <laughs> it's important, especially when dealing with PTSD, which is something that is not talked about at all. Yeah. It's especially so this, this effectively. Time. In the 40s as yeah. well. Yeah. I, I really, the biggest takeaway, not besides the fact this film's awesome, and it's also one of those films that was actually really good and ran the table as well yeah. <laughs> at the Oscars. And just the fact that, like we've mentioned a couple times, the fact that this was made almost directly after World War II, and it is this poignant, this um, well well paced as well. This film clocks in like two fifty. 
mm-hmm. and they actually utilize the runtime effectively. Um, yeah, because there's so many stories. Sure, and I think they interweave all three of them so well. So best years of our lives at 37. Uh, moving on here to 36, um, The Bridge on the River Kwai from 1957, directed by David Lean, written by Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson, based on the Pierre Boulet novel, who also, he also famously wrote Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. Um, it stars William Holden, Sir Alec Guinness, Jack Hawkins, and Sesui Hayakawa. I definitely butchered that. But, um, I so, yeah. But um, it was nominated for eight Oscars. Uh, it won seven. Uh, it won Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role for Alec Guinness. Sir Alec Sir Guinness. Alec Guinness. Dang it. I wanted, I wanted to make sure I did that every time, but I missed it. Anyway, um, Best Director, Best Screenplay, uh, or Best Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Film Editing, and Best Score. And it was also a supporting actor for Hayakawa. Um, yeah, it was a no- he was nominated for that. Um, best Picture that year. Uh, we mentioned it earlier on the list, but we'll just say it again real quick. Bridge on the River Kwai won. Twelve Angry Men, Sayonara, Peyton Place, and Witness for the Prosecution. This is, uh, I, I think we're, I don't know if you're sensing a theme here. These are a lot of films that I have been meaning to watch, but have oh, not watched. Oh, you haven't watched. seen this one yet. Oh. I just, no, I just watched it before prepping for this uh, section of the list. And, uh, wow. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's really good. Wow. I mean, it was, uh, it, it really just blew me away. Yeah, it's surprising how good it is. Yeah. Because this movie is almost three hours, mm-hmm. and you're still interested in very boring stuff that they're doing. You're like, this is still interesting. <laughs> but like Sir Alec Guinness, I need to uh, specify there. He, um, he, man, he is on fire throughout this yeah. entire movie. It's so interesting to watch him knowing that he became Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. And watching this, you're just like, oh, you acted in other stuff. He plays almost like two roles in this film in a way. Yeah, he's... Oh, the plot of this movie, if you don't know, if you need to, you need to see this movie, I think. Sure. It's one of those iconic films. Yeah. Um, they're POWs in a Japanese internment camp. Mm-hmm. And they uh, they surrendered to the Japanese and were captured as POWs. And um, famously, the Japanese don't like people who surrender. Yeah. They, th- they see it as weakness. Mm-hmm. And so they were, they treated really bad. Mm-hmm. And then there's the controversy right from the get-go that, um, according to the Geneva Convention, officers are not allowed um, to participate in manual labor. Um, but uh, Colonel Saito uh, rejects that and basically throws um, throws uh, Sir Alec Guinness in, um, in, the, in the pit, basically. Kind of similar to the hole in Shawshank. Yeah, this throws him into solitary confinement. For, what, five days? At least. Yeah, I mean... And he also captures all the officers as well. And they're all British in a way that's annoyingly British. They say jolly good show, and those, like, any stereotypical British phrase you can think of, it's probably said. Like, tally how you're like, yes. (laughs) William Holden even makes fun of them for it at the end. end, And also, they open up the entire thing. They're whistling while they're marching. Yeah. And, like, they're already POWs at that point. They're POWs. And also, there are sections to it. Like, that's the thing that blows my mind. If you listen yeah. to it, it's like some person is doing the under, like, doing, the, like, the stuff that, like, the inst- instruments below, like, they're the main instrument. Yes. Yeah, you're just looking and going, like, what? <laughs> I Yeah, I have never seen such jolly, yeah, POWs. It's interesting. Yeah, but. And then, and then at the, I mean, at the forefront, while Alec Guinness is, uh, is um, trapped, 
uh, they're basically just half-assing the whole thing <laughs> until he gets out, and then he does it the British way, basically, because like he wants he doesn't want the British name to be disrespected, so he wants to build this bridge right. Yeah, so they're tasked with building this bridge, and it's a really crappy bridge when they start off. So then he's yeah. like, "We're gonna build it the right way. Where's our engineers and da 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 da?" They build this huge. Huge bridge, and they have to change location because the ground's not stable. Yeah, like they, have, they actually like have British engineers in their group, like tell them where to build a bridge. And yeah. he's like, "You're helping the enemy build a build this," but it's like, it's also the kind of thing where they'll literally lose their minds if they didn't do this. Yeah. So it's to give them some sort of normalcy and some sort of manual labor, but they want to feel proud of what they did. On the other side of this, the Americans are trying to find a way to get them out. Well, that, and then there's also a British task force that yeah. once William Holden escapes, and they actually think he's dead because they, they shot down the other two guys he escaped with, and they thought that they killed him, but he ends up surviving. And a British task force um, uh, basically finds him, and they had, without his knowledge, they had communicated with the Americans, and the Americans let them have him because he was impersonating, well, they actually didn't know he was impersonating an officer, but he was impersonating an officer, and they basically had to help him, or they basically had to have him help them blow up the bridge. And it's basically these two groups of one one British side is trying to blow up this bridge, while the while another British side is trying to build the bridge for the Japanese. And it is fascinating this cat and mouse game of people that really should be on the same side, but it it's really more complicated than that. Yeah, it's David Lean who also directed Lawrence of Arabia. Um, this film's really well made. Mm-hmm. It's deserving of its of all the Oscars it won, I believe. I, I know mm-hmm. Twin Anger Men to me is fantastic, but very Bridget, different very, films. Though. Very different films. This is like an epic. Like yeah, Twelve Angry Men is contained in one room, and Bridge of the Requi is just like Bridge of the Requi is in a, just. It's, it's in a Japanese jungle somewhere. It is. It is one of those these films, and like they even mention, um, Saito said, "There's no watchtower. There's no border. If you try to escape, you're gonna die, basically." Because there's no way you can escape. Yeah, you're on an island in the middle of Southeast Asia. Like yeah. it's This is another film that just feels epic. The yeah. way it's shot. Also, it shows kind of a story. I didn't know that the British were in. Japan. Yeah. I didn't know that. And then I saw this film, I'm like, oh, yeah, the J- I forgot the British fought with us. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think this film is amazingly well made. Mm-hmm. It's just stands the test of time. Sir Al Guinness is incredible. He has that famous line at the end of, what have I done? Um, when he finally realizes that maybe building that maybe blowing up this bridge is the right thing to do, so as he kind of stumbles, well, he gets stabbed. Well, he get well that that, but also um uh, he once he, he kind of stumbles over to the dynamite and eventually it blows also, up. Also, there's also one other thing, his wounded are on that, on the train. So that's yes. why they built the bridge in the first place. Yes, I forgot. Like I'm, okay, I haven't seen his movie in a long time. Gotcha. So like, but I, it's one of my dad's favorites. Sure. So like they have the they have so many wounded. This bridge, will, this bridge will help get their wounded to someplace better. Okay, gotcha. I don't think I realized that. Okay. Yeah, he talked about that a lot because, like, right before he goes, he's like, "We see something on the bridge. We need to stop. We see like a wire or something. They go down there, and he's like, what, is, what have I done?'" Yeah. Because he's like, "We have to, we have to blow up the bridge." Yeah. And I'm gonna kill my wounded. It's it really is just not an easy situation and not an easy pill for him to and swallow. And it's not a good it, like it's not a happy ending. They don't say anything. everyone dies. Yeah, basically everybody dies. Like 
Like, the Americans that are there, like, they try to run out and try to kill as many Japanese as they can. They get gunned down, like, immediately. <laughs> yeah. Like, almost all the British people who then they try to rebel, they get, like, killed immediately. Mm -hmm. The bridge blows up. The William Holden Task Force, everybody gets killed except uh, Jack Hawkins. I know he gets, he, sh he ends up getting shot in the foot. But I, I don't remember if he actually dies. But, I don't I don't remember either. Um, but like I haven't seen this movie in a long time. Yeah, no, it's all good. Um no, th I mean this film I mean, there's a reason we're talking about it for so long. It's it's one of the best war films ever made. Yeah. I would say. At thirty six, I think I think again, that's good. It's good. I mean yeah. top forty is important. So. Sure. Fifty seven was just a really good year for film. Yeah. Uh, moving on here to a controversial selection to say the least. Thirty five, Annie Hall. From 1977, directed by Woody Allen, written by Woody Allen and Marshall Brickman, and stars Woody Allen, Diane Keaton, Tony Roberts, and I put Shelley Duvall, Paul Simon, and Carol Kane also make appearances. Uh, it was nominated for five Oscars, won four. Um, it won Best Picture, uh, Best Actress in a Leading Role for Diane Keaton, Best Director, and Best um, Screenplay, and Woody Allen was also nominated for Best Actor. Uh, Best Picture that year, uh, Annie Hall won. Um, Julia, The Goodbye Girl, The Turning Point, and uh, this little indie film called Star Wars. This was it was 20th Century Fox. Come on, man. <laughs> no, um, I was joking. Uh, inducted in National Film Registry in 1992. Uh, it's I mean, problematic. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let, do you want to just jump into Let's Woody Allen? Let's do this right now. Okay. So Woody Allen sexually assaulted his adopted daughter in mm. 1992. And his adopted daughter, and then it was kind of, they had no real proof at the time, and it kind of got dismissed. But, like, his adopted daughter has come out multiple times and said, I'm not the only one. Because yeah. he has other adopted children who have come out and said the exact same thing. Yeah. And she, to this day, keeps saying that it happened. He was one of the guys that got Me Too'd before Me Too was a thing. And he still makes films today, and people don't go to them. Because of this? Yeah. Because, it, I'll mention this, the, his adopted daughter was, I think, early teens. It's just, you look at it and go, why? And yeah. it's just, Woody Allen is one of one of the most important filmmakers he's of all time. probably one of the best screenwriters of all time. Yeah, he's, he's a really good writer. He's a really good uh, director. I don't know if he's a good actor. Yeah. His stick is very dry yeah. and runs kind of thin mm -hmm. real quickly. I don't think Annie Hall's that good. So I must confess, I haven't seen this film in a few years. I remember liking it. I don't remember loving it. I remember loving Diane Keaton. I think that yeah. was, I think Woody Allen just seems like a horrible person. and He's verbally abusive. Yeah, like they're not, like, like the reason, it's about this relationship and they break up for reason. Mm -hmm. It's just like the controversy surrounding this. It doesn't age well with the with what you what we know about Woody Allen. Yeah, he he's just a he's just a bad dude. I I mean Annie Hall is a is definitely one of his I mean his signature films in the late seventies. Manhattan's another one that a lot of people point to, uh, of just him his kind of quintessential New York films. Yeah. Um, with like the quippy dialogue. I mean, there's that famous he breaks the fourth wall. I mean, he, he kind of was ahead of his time from a screenwriting perspective. Yeah. For sure. Uh, has some of the best comedic timing in that respect. It's just, it's hard. It doesn't age well when you know everything about Woody Allen. Also, 
I I have been on record multiple times saying I have a pretty easy time of separating the filmmaker from the film. However, this with has... Woody Allen, he is in front of your face the whole time. He wrote it. He directed it. He is everywhere. Also, there's a lot of sex in this movie. Yeah. And they and it's when you find out that he sexually assaulted his 12-year-old or 13-year-old adopted daughter. It makes you uncomfortable. I also remember, I could be wrong in this, but I, if I remember it, it was not always consensual. Mm-mm. Which also does not age well. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's a reason as to why he's been independently funded. He doesn't earn as much. I don't think he lives in the States anymore, I'm pretty sure. I would not be surprised. But um, I think we can just move on. I think this doesn't belong in the top 50 I yeah, I'd knock it down. I mean, it's definitely one of like the It's, it's like, one of the few films comedic films that win best picture. Yeah. So like it's important for that. Yeah. But and Diane Keaton, like we mentioned, is incredible. And this was It's a really tight script. Yeah. I mean she won an she deserved the Oscar, I think, for this, but yeah, Annie Hall is just a it's a tough sell now in twenty nineteen. Uh moving on to number thirty four. Uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs from 1937. All right, so let's fight. Let's do this. Um, okay. So directed by William Cottrell, David Hand, Wilfred Jackson, Larry Morey, Pierce, Purse Pierce, Ben Sharpstein, uh, read by a bunch of people. Um, it's an animated film. Uh, a lot animated of directors. film, yeah. Stars Adriana Casaletti, Harry Stockwell, Lucille Laverne. Uh, Walt Disney won an honorary Oscar for this. Um, kind of just how this film really changed the game for animation. Yep. Uh, inducted in the National Film Registry in 89. Uh, this is also the year... By the way, I mentioned this on the last pod. The other person, Spielberg, um, bought it a silent auction. It was Betty Davis this oh, year. Oh, this year. Okay. Mm-hmm. So she won an Oscar this year. Um, I also noted Michael Curtiz was nominated for two different films for Best Director um, that year. Uh, one second while I pull this up real quick. That's kind of nuts. It. I don't know if that has ever happened. Uh, Betty Davis won for Jezebel that year, by oh, the way. Oh, yeah. One of our iconic uh, roles. Uh, best director. He was nominated for Angel with Dirty Faces and Four Daughters. Angel with Dirty Faces, see, man. Classic, um, classic. Also, I just realized there's no from Edward. James Cagney. Yeah, James Cagney, and there's also no Edward G. Robinson on this list, which kind of makes me very sad. Oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, like one of the most iconic yeah. actors of the early, of yeah, like the twenties well, and thirties. You know, we've also noticed they missed a lot. They missed this. a lot. Like, okay, so Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Sure. First. Fully animated film. Yep. Cell animated film. I should say sure. cell animated film. It was in color. It's groundbreaking. Rotoscoping. And Rotoscoping. All it deserves to be on the list. Yes. It is really high. I watched this movie. I watched this movie Monday. Okay. For this, because I'm sure. like, because he was like, I want to see if he has a point. Cause yeah. Like, it is really high for this movie. It's important. Some like, it drags in a lot of places. Yeah. There's like there's just a lot of random stuff that doesn't that happens yeah. that doesn't like help so, the plot. Yeah, the seven dwarves are okay. <laughs> sure, I so I haven't seen this film in a while. I guess my thing with this is, it did change the game. It was first. I just think it's way too high, and I also have a hard time because this is the only animated film on this list. Toy Story, Toy Story or Toy Story's on there too. Sorry, um, I guess. Anime from this era. Yeah. From this era. It's only like pure Disney film that's on the sure. list. I would put this back with Toy Story. Mm-hmm. But I would like in like the late in the nineties. But like Beauty and the Beast 
Mm-hmm. Maybe should be here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nominated for Best Picture. First animated film nominated for Best Picture. And, like, was super important in the Renaissance of Disney. I think Pinocchio is another important film. Pinocchio, Lion King. Mm-hmm. Dumbo, new, yeah, not the, the new one. We were talking all originals, of course. Uh, original. no, no remakes. Mer- maybe Little Mermaid, because that's what started the Renaissance. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, this film hasn't aged well. Yeah, it's boring. Mm-hmm. Very thirties. <laughs> very thirties. It's also freaking scary. Like, like, yeah. There's some very adult things. Like, the Huntsman's tasked with taking out her heart. Yeah. They don't like sugarcoat. Like, I want you to. Bring her to me, and then like he does like, it's like I'm gonna put her heart in this box. It goes like, I want you to go out and kill her, yeah. bring her heart back in this box. Yeah. And like also, it's not. And there's just so many like adult things. Like when she turns into the witch, yeah. it's scary. Yeah. She just dies. Mm-hmm. And then some random dude comes on, kisses her, and then just that was the end of the movie. <laughs> White man saves the day again. <laughs> yeah, just just kisses her while she's asleep. She wakes up. I guess this is my husband now. I'm gone. Jeez, yeah. And like, there's just a lot That's of problems tough. with that. That's tough. That's a tough sell. Like, like, looks like Sleeping Beauty. You like, you get, like, he was trying to save her. Mm-hmm. Like, he he fought a freaking dragon to get yeah. her. Yeah. You like, you see that? Yeah. This guy just like strolls up on a white horse and says, "Like, what's up, babe?" Kisses her, <laughs> kisses her, and then <laughs> takes her off. What's up, babe? Oh my goodness. I will say, I really enjoyed um, Dopey. Because Do- Dopey's hilarious. Yeah. Dopey does a lot of physical stuff that I'm like, I appreciate you. Mm-hmm. You're at least trying. Sure. It's just like none of these, like, Hi-Ho is probably the, my favorite moment of the entire thing. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't age well. Also, the fact that, like, Disney ruined the, like, lead actress's career after this. Yeah. She signed a contract that she can never act in a movie again. <laughs> yes, I forgot about Disney that. Disney made her sign that contract. <laughs> that is so stupid. How that how that even was made. I also I took a Walt Disney like cl- film class here at KU last night, so I do have an appreciation for this stuff. I mean, Disney's important. I mean, he's yeah. from KC. Like we're, yeah. we're we're around Kansas City. Yeah, he's from here. He lit uh his um original studios off Troost. Yeah, over there. So like he's important. He is important. He I mean his work deserves to be on this list. I just Snow White's really high. So, like I think we can argue they. There's so many other films, animated films, that should be higher. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But anyway, moving on to number 33, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from 1975, directed by Milos Forman. Also directed Amadeus. Um, R.I.P., by the way. R.I.P. He died Milos like Forman. last year, didn't he? I think it was last year. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Um, written by Lawrence Haven uh, and Bo Goldman based on the Ken Kesey novel. Uh, stars Jack Nicholson, Louise Fletcher, Will Sampson, and young Danny DeVito and Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, like it, I watched this and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot you guys are in this movie. Yes, um, I actually forgot Christopher Lloyd was uh, in this till recently. Um, I was watching the movies on CNN, but anyway, um, Michael Douglas produced. Yeah, he um, wanted to, to star in this movie mm-hmm. for the longest time, uh, but he produced. I believe it's his only Oscar. It is, which is kind of crazy. He's been acting forever. Yeah. Well, and his dad, of course. Yeah. Kirk Douglas. Um, uh, he was no- also really young when he produced this movie. Yeah. 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 Nominated for nine Oscars. Uh, it won five. It won uh, the big. It became the first film in forty-one years to sweep the major categories: yeah, the picture, the director, actor, actress, and screenplay. Since it happened one night. Um, uh, so Jack Nicholson won for a lead, 
Louis Fletcher won for lead best director and screenplay. It's also nominated um, Brad Dorif for supporting actor, cinematography, film editing, and score. Yeah, sorry, um, Brad Dorif. He's chief, right? I believe so. Okay, I believe so. Okay. Um, I, I, I was like, oh, I know that name. I was like, I, okay. Um, inducted in the National Film Industry in 1993. Uh, best picture. We've talked about it. One of the best. One of the best classes of all time. One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest won. Barry Lyndon, Jaws, Nashville, and Dog Day Afternoon. The only one that doesn't deserve is Nashville. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And people who will argue and all the time about Nashville. Go back to our uh, previous episode on Nashville if you want to hear our thoughts on that. Um, anyway, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, I mean, anytime we can talk about Jack, I'm going to do it. I and mean, this is a classic performance. One of his three Oscars. His best performance. I don't think it's close. I mean, the only one that really rivals it for me... Because Chinatown is is a classic performance. He's smarmy, and I, I think he... This is like... You can relate to this performance and we'll put up Cuckoo's Nest. Sure. He... I mean... I think Shining's up there. Shining's up there. I think that, um, uh, I mean, he's great in terms of endearment. A Few Good Men is yeah. a classic one. Um, but this is him at the height of his power. Like, yeah. Like, he was, he was kind of a no-name kind of guy, and then he does, Well, I mean, until Easy Rider. And, and, was really, uh, Easy, well, he was, that was his first film role. Yeah. He does Easy Rider, kind of like, does some and stuff. And then Five Easy Pieces, and, five, then, and, and then, then Chinatown, and then this. Yeah. Well, I mean, by this point, I think people knew Jack is the real deal. Yeah, but this is just him, like, I'm doing this role. He goes for and it. And he kills it. Absolutely kills it. And it's heartbreaking. It's You're inspired. You're you're happy. You're, and then it just falls apart. Nurse Ratched, also one of the greatest villains, probably. Yeah, and the... you just realize, like, in the end, she's like, I'm just doing my damn job. Mm-hmm. Like, she seems evil, but she just wants it done her way. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like you're like, man, you're just such a, so you're such a bitch. Like I hate you, I hate you so much. And then, you're, and then you're like, in the end, she was right. Yeah. Like, because Jack Nicholson comes in, he did, he took the insanity plea so he can get a lighter sentence. Mm-hmm. He comes here and he thinks he doesn't belong here. Yeah. And then at the end, when he chokes Nurse Ratchet out, proves that he belonged there and gets lobotomized. Yeah. And it's such a good movie. Nicholson's incredible. Mm-hmm. I think it's well deserved where it's at. Yeah, I mean, you could honestly put it higher, and I would be like, I, I feel happy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is. I mean, definitely. I kind of, as we mentioned, it won the Big Five. Um, one of the few films to do that. Um, so that's important right there. Uh, Jack. Yep. Yeah, Power performance from him, Luis Fletcher, incredible. Milos Forman, I, I don't believe we've talked about because Amadeus was on the original list, but not on this one. How is it on? How is it not on this list? Amadeus I, is a masterpiece. I, I don't know what to tell you. Also, I haven't seen it, but <gasps> it's on my list. Oh my god, you need to watch. We, yeah, you need to watch it this weekend. Yeah, watch it. I will. I will watch it. It's it is on my watch list. Um, but no, one floor of the cuckoo's nest. I uh, incredible. Uh, 75, I, I'm, you know, Jaws and Dog Day After, I think Jaws, I probably personally like better. I like better because Jaws not, is a popcorn film. I'm not mad about this, Best Picture win. No, this is, like, Dog Day Afternoon is incredible. It's not on this list, which is nuts. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
God, it's so good. It's it's a good movie. I think it deserved the best picture. Sure. Barry Lyndon just was Kubrick showing off. Mm-hmm. All camera, all by candlelight, <laughs> shooting this film. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, this is, I think this is well-deserved. I think 33 is a good place. 33 is a good spot. I'm, I'm yeah. going to put Jaws above it because it's just a popcorn fun Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, moving on here, though, uh, to 32, to a film that I I, I don't know why it's this low. Uh, the yep. Godfather Part Two from 1974, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, written by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo from his novel, of course. Um, uh, stars Al Pacino, John Cazale, uh, Robert De Niro, Robert Duvall, and Diane Keaton nominated for 11 Oscars, and it won six. Yeah, it won Best Picture. Uh, it won Best Picture. The first sequel to win Best Picture. Robert De Niro, one of his two Oscars um, for playing Vito Corleone, the younger version, um, in supporting role. Uh, best Director, Best Screenplay, or Best Adapted Screenplay, Art Direction, and Score. Al Pacino was nominated for Best Actor. He became the third actor after Peter O'Toole to be twice nominated for an Oscar for portraying the same character as he had previously portrayed Michael Corleone in The Godfather a couple years earlier. Michael Gatso, um, supporting supporting role. Lee Strasberg, supporting role. Talia Shire, supporting actress and costume design. Uh, I don't know how John Cazale did not get nominated. John Cazale deserved to get nominated. I John Cazale is one of the forgotten stars of. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've we've gushed over John Cazale a bunch on R. this R. podcast. John uh, honestly, yes. Um, best picture that year: Godfather Part Two, One, Chinatown, Lenny, The Conversation, Towering Inferno. That's a really good class too. Towering Inferno just seems like it's really like out of place in this <laughs> yeah, entire thing. This disaster film. Yeah, this just, disaster but, film, which is really good, is Steve McQueen and a mm-hmm. bunch of like other big stars. Is Newman in that one? Yeah, Paul Newman's in that one, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Conversation, love that. Um, Also, we were talking about uh, Curtiz earlier. Coppola, two Best Picture nominees um, in this class. I think Conversation, another uh, Kazale and Hackman um, in that one, I think. I would make a case he could be on this list, but I digress. Um, Inducted in the National Film Registry in 93. The The question always comes up, is it better than The First Godfather? Simple answer is no. It's a good. Uh, it's a. These films are good together. I I really think honestly it's a waste of time saying which one's better. It's like oh, is like potentially the greatest film all t- of all time better than um, a probably not higher than thirty two um, greatest film of all time. <laughs> like I, they're, they're like it's just like picking your favorite kid. It's yeah, because like, like they had. After this movie came out, they released, uh, well, sorry, in the late 80s, early 90s, you released a VHS version of this where it's all in order. Mm-hmm. So you get the beginning of, you get the okay. you get the De Niro side of Corleone, Corleone coming to America, mm-hmm. and then you get the uh, events of, of Godfather 1 and then the events of Godfather 2. Yeah. So you see the ascent and descent. Yeah. Ty Shire getting nominated for Best Supporting Actress, I think's weird. Yeah. You're not a big Connie fan? I think she's good, but, like, I'm thinking more of, like, Diane Keaton gives one. It, the ending with Diane Keaton is yeah. nuts. Yeah, also, yeah, yeah. the amount of talent on screen in this movie is insane. Just even if the first one as well, I think these two films just... I mean, there's a bunch of young actors you didn't know were going to be anything. But looking back at it now, to get all these people together is... I don't think it's... Pro- I mean, 
maybe not on, on this scale. I don't know if it's been replicated. No, it hasn't been. I mean, there's yeah. been films where it's like it's an all-star cast, but it doesn't execute. Yeah. De Niro, this is his first big film. Yeah. And people thought that he was an Italian actor. He didn't speak Italian. He mm-hmm. learned it for this movie. Yeah. And that he speaks Italian almost this entire film. And he is nuts. Yeah, yeah. It's um, really the only real unfortunate thing is we, of course, due to timeline, never got Pacino and De Niro on the same on the screen at the same time. Not till Heat. Not till Heat. Um, I thank you for that. Yes. We didn't get it on the last pod. We got it this time. Oh I'm man. Making, I want to make sure you got that. You yes. got your Heat reference. Thank you. Had to get it at least once an episode. Yeah. Um, uh, it would have been nice in the seventies since they both were kind of operating. Yeah. This at is. The high I mean, level, this is. How the hell did Pacino not win best? He, he just got screwed over. Like, how do you not win best <laughs> best actor this this year? Who won best actor? Um, let's look real quick. Seventy five. Um, let's see. Uh, it was Art Carney for Harry and Tonto. Are you shitting me? <laughs> Are you kidding me? It was it was Pacino. Got everybody else two. besides Art Carney is the, really these four other four are like regarded as like some of the greatest actors. Yeah. Al Pacino, Hoffman, Albert Finney, and Jack Nicholson are the other four, and Art Carney wins for Harry and Tonto. Are you shitting me? That's an all time miss. Yeah, like that's an all time. Al Pacino miss. is so good in this movie. Yeah. He is literally the best. Like, Fredo, you broke my heart. Yeah, that entire dynamic. I mean, we're always going to bring up how important this film is. Mm-hmm. First film with the letter 2 in the name. Okay. First film that had an almost an entire, like, part of its film was subtitled. And, like, people left the theater when they started and they started putting subtitles down. Oh, what? Really? Yeah, because people don't want to read. Yeah. Well, that's dumb. It is. It's <laughs> dumb. It's very dumb. It is my dad's favorite version, favorite of the two. Okay. Um, I think I, a lot of people prefer it. I think it's just you show the both these guys, and you see it's like they par- you know the parallels. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of if you watch Pacino in this one, it's his descent. And in the first one, it's his ascent. This and then you see, you see his father's Vito. ascent, Vito's ascent, and this one, mm-hmm. and it makes you fall in love with like the first one even more. I sure. think. Sure. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. you see where Vito came from. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a prequel that's actually done right. It's a prequel, <laughs> but also telling a story in the modern and like. It's a prequel and a sequel at the same time, and. It's incredible how they pulled it off, and it makes sense. Yeah, you ne- you're never confused about where you're at. Um, I I, I, lo- I love how the when you go back in time, how it looks different than modern. Yes, it's shot different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like shot with like a more like soft glow, a little and, even grainy at times yeah, too. It's just, it may, almost feels like it's like the pictures from the ni- early 1900s. Yes. Also, just like the rawness of this, like the violence in this movie is just like super, like realistic and yeah. raw, like I mean sure it's so good they don't I mean they don't pull punches I personally prefer the first one partly because I just I really just like all the ensemble cast I love Brando and Brando's great um, James Caan is great in the first yeah. one yeah Jesus I mean I forgot James Caan is in the first one like, yeah you forget like how well, many I mean, Sunny Sunny at the Toll Booth is a classic scene yeah I was like and when he said James Caan I'm like right yes right yes, with the little fro um Take the gun, leave the or 
Yeah, take the gun. Leave we the need gun to talk leave. about Godfather's way down this yes, list. Yes, 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 yes. We'll but, talk but about like, that. This on the movie last episode. made um, Coppola was seen as a fluke with the first Godfather. Yeah, this one kind of cemented him like, as oh, like this guy's actually good. And so then the studio was like, "Well, let you do your next project," which happened to Apocalypse Now. Yeah, he started production. He was literally in the middle of production when he won his Oscar. Sure, he had like a heart attack. He's like. Well, he's dying Apocalypse in, Now, we'll talk about next week. Yeah, but he's, like, dying in the jungle at this time. Yeah. And basically, because I guess, like, someone saw the early cut, he's like, you can do whatever you want next. Mm-hmm. And we decided to do Apocalypse Now. It's just, it's nuts. Uh, also, uh, it taught me the phrase, what well, swimming with the fishes means. That's, a, that's the first one. That's the first one? Mm-hmm. Oh, because they, no, no, I remember now, because they took Fredo out to the middle of the lake and killed him. That's what it was. Yep. Yeah, that's, yep. also, that's also just one of those That is one scenes. of the most. Oh, I mean, also that scene where it's like, I got stepped over. Yeah. I'm like, I'm your older brother, Mike. Yeah. I got stepped over. I, like, watching it, after you know what happens at the end, you're, like, almost in tears. You're like, you get what Fredo's going through. Yeah. He got, he got screwed over. He was led to kill his own brother. Because he thought he was going to get, be put in the... As in the, the dawn. As the dawn. But nothing goes the way he wants, so he has to cover his ass. <sighs> Fredo just uh, disrespected. Disrespected. R.I.P. Pour one out for Fredo. Godfather 2, uh, way higher. I would put this out. I'll put this top 20. Yeah. Top 15, I mean, I'd put honestly. The, I'd put top 15. I think 32 is way too low for this. Uh, moving on here to our final... Um, film in this episode, um, number 31, The Maltese Falcon from our 19... Second, our second uh, John Huston bogey film? Yeah, uh, third with African Queen. Well, second one on this Second on, the, on this episode, yep, yep, yep. Um, John Huston directed and wrote it based on the Dashiell Hammett novel. Uh, stars Humphrey Bogart, Mary Astor, Gladys George, and I just wanted to throw in Peter Lorre because I love Peter Lorre. He's also in Casablanca and M. He's great as a character actor um, in this era. Nominated for three Oscars, did not win any. Uh, best Picture, uh, Supporting Actress for Sydney Greenstreet, uh, Screenplay. Again, Bogey isn't nominated. How does this keep happening? Bogey just was disrespected, man. Oh, my gosh. This is so stupid. Inducted in the National Film Industry in 89. 89, big year for this um, group. Um, uh, I think that, that was the first year of the National Film Industry. I'm not, I might be wrong. Was it? Okay. I might be because... I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure. But... Um, Best picture, uh, how green was I? I didn't want to put the twelve or whatever ten. How many? I mean, Citizen Kane is the only one. Citizen Kane was also this year. Yeah, that's the only one you need to like really talk yeah. about. That's and the fact that how green was my valley beat both of them is just like absurd. Oh my god, the Mal- the Maltese Falcon. Where to begin? It's the stuff that dreams are made of. Yes, <laughs> that's really that's really the the whole summit summary in a nutshell. Yeah, um, Sam Spade, classic. Character, Dashiell classic Hammett, role I mean, for um, Bogey. Dashiell Hammett wrote one of the best characters of all time, uh-huh. and Humphrey Bogart is incredible. Yeah, <laughs> as, as usual, like sure, uh, a classic uh, noir um, kind of really uh, set up what noir was going to be for the future. Yeah, because Double Indemnity was after this, right? Yep. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, we'll talk about that later too. Um, Maltese Falcon, a uh, really nice uh, cat and mouse game. Mm-hmm. Uh, between this as their uh, also like the first like just kind of like the first kind of twist yeah of like I can think of like because I remember watching this and my dad told me what a twist was watching this movie because like the the falcon that they thinks the real one isn't the real one <laughs> it's all a dupe yes and then at the end they get the real one you're like oh crap yes also one of the best MacGuffins yeah of all time yeah and I read I mean I watched this in film class I watched this when I was a kid 
because mm-hmm. I wanted like I read the book when I was a kid, and my dad like showed me the movie, and then I remember us talking about like, does it help that you see the Maltese Falcon? Mm. And then I argued that it'd be better if you didn't see it at all. Yeah. Okay. Because I think it'd be cool if like they open a crate, you don't see anything, kind of like Pulp Fiction with the case. Oh, I see what you mean. So you don't even see what it looks like. Yeah, it could add to the mystery a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will say, I don't know if the plot point of, like, the misdirect works as well. It doesn't work as it. well if if you've... It's also been a movie that's been around for so long. Yeah. If we're talking about, like, you know, we're talking about, like, King Kong and all that, where it's, like, pop culture. This is pop culture at the height. Because, like, there's an the image of Bogart in a fedora with a gun and his name in, like, a shadow... In front of it, like, <laughs> like his him being backlit with his name on the door. It's iconic. It's it one of the most iconic. iconic films. John Huston directed a masterpiece with mm-hmm. this film. The first uh, redirect doesn't really work as well. Yeah. But when it happens at the end, you're like, oh shit, they actually found the real one. Yeah. Um, I I mean, first, I think one of the first film fatales I remember being on t- screen. Probably yeah, forty one yeah. yeah. Uh, 41, also just an incredible year for film, as we got both Citizen Kane and, Mal- and Maltese Falcon. Uh, I also watched this in a film class, and it is it finally broke the mold of I actually enjoyed the film when watching it. Yeah, like, there are certain films I watch in the film class, I'm like, I have to watch this. Mm-hmm. And I watch, and then when this came up, I'm like, I need to watch this again. I yeah. really fell in love with this movie. Mm-hmm. I think this and The Thin Man were the two for me that, like, in film class actually connected with. Really? Yeah, I, I had to watch the third man for. Third man is I I just watched that recently like yeah. about a month ago. Yeah, Orson Welles is. I mean, I know I've heard people call that like one of the top ten best films ever made, and like I I can't really argue yeah. it. I yeah, Orson guess. Orson Welles is an amazing actor. Period. Yeah. And, and Carol he... Carol Reed uh, is and Joseph Cotton are all yeah. great. But um, the fact that this kind of set the tone for like noir films. Because this is iconic, because, like, every, like, this film gets made fun of, mm-hmm. this movie. Like, also, Bogey's run. Like, he makes this and then makes Casablanca the next year. Yeah. It's nuts. Mm-hmm. John Huston made this right before he went off to war. Mm-hmm. And this film was a commercial, I think it was a bomb. I'm pretty sure it wasn't, like, it wasn't successful. Mm-hmm. People thought it was too dark. <laughs> and then it kind of just, it was just left in theaters to run, because back then, they would just bring films back out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every once in a while, and this film just got a lot of. I mean, it got nominated for best best picture, and was nominated for a couple of Oscars. I think it just got bolted up. Yeah. Uh this. I mean, it's it's just a classic. <laughs> like, it's a classic. I, I mean, like thirty one. I'm fine. I'm fine there. with thirty one. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not it's not, like top fifteen great. It's not The Godfather Part Two where it's like. This is incredible. No, but it's still like, I mean, I would. It's one of those films I'd still give it like a five star rating. Like it's no, like it's, like, it's one of those films if you love film you need to watch. Yes, it's important. I mean, the the line that we I mentioned earlier, stuff dreams are made of. I mean, that's that's like one of the greatest film lines of all time. Yeah, and it's a line that was like people laughed at in theaters, and they're like now you watch it, you go, that's so. Now good. Now it's in every montage of cinema history of yeah. all time. So that is thirty one through forty. Um, we kind of mentioned, I, I think everything besides Annie Hall deserves to be in this range. Yeah, I think I wrote, let me check my notes. Um, 
yeah, I think I yeah. Sound of Music, best years, of, best years of life. You could bolt up mm-hmm. if you really want to. Part Godfather Part Two as well. Yeah, Treasure of Sierra Madre. I think it's fine where it's at. Uh-huh. Maltese Falcon is fine where it's at. Uh-huh. Snow White and Annie Hall are the two that we think. Yeah, should be that's lower. right. That's right. That's right. Yep. Uh, films that she higher. I think Doctor Strange Love. You could argue could be higher. Uh, River Kwai, maybe a couple spots, but like yeah. I think thirty six is fine for that. One for the Cuckoo's Nest. It's fine. Fine where it's at. Godfather Part Two, just like top fifteen. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, all these films, all these films at least are important. Right. I will say that. I don't think, there's not an intolerance in this group. There's, there's, no, not, there's no film that's like. Why is this even in the conversation? Yeah. yeah. Like, even though Annie Hall clearly doesn't age all the Woody Allen stuff, I still, un- I understand why it's this high. Yeah. You understand, like, why the AFI voted for this to be this high. Mm-hmm. You understand why some films are, like. You understand why Snow White's high. Yeah. You understand it. I I may not. I don't agree with it. You don't agree with it, but like, if we're doing a more modern take, they look at this. They look at this much differently. Yeah. In a di- different light of importance for importance versus, uh, I guess, relevance, maybe. Yeah, because like, Woody Allen's a non-factor anymore in Hollywood. Yeah. He's a, he was important for a little bit. Had a couple big films in the seven, late seventies and sure. early eighties. Then he was kind of was gone. Yeah, 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 he had some films recently which did pretty well, uh-huh. but uh, yeah, like Blue Jasmine won Cate Blanchett an and Oscar. Midnight, Midnight in Paris is one that I like with Owen Wilson. Yeah, he's he's an important dude. He's also in uh, a troubled a man. douche canoe. Yeah, I would say. Douche canoe. Um, and that's how <laughs> we'll end this. A douche, um, douche canoe. Douche canoe. Woody I mean, Allen is a douche canoe. I mean, we could end by doing another heat reference if you want, but do uh, you, you, you need your ratio back up? I mean, sure. I, I'm trying to think of the reference. I mean, action is the juice is like the low-hanging fruit. Um, have you thought about that in a while? When Tom Sizemore... Okay, I just watched this clip again today. Uh, of course you did. You love heat. Well, so th- here's the thing. I, have, I, I love this film so much. And we, in some way, we're talking about heat on this podcast, like in full in-depth. Um, I will make sure it happens. I mean, we could, when we do our, like, at the end of this entire thing, we can do like a read list and we can... We can talk heat. I'm fine with this I, talking heat. Here's the heat. thing. I I can't, knowing how this should work, I probably shouldn't put heat in the top 100. But, like, personal list, it's, like, top five <laughs> for me. Honestly, like, I love it that much. Well, because it's, it's Pacino and Robert De Niro. Well, and, like, and Val Kilmer, Danny Trejo, Dennis Haber, Haysbert, Michael Mann directs. I mean, Tom Sizemore, um, Ashley Judd. Like it's an incredible cast. Hank Azaria, um, it's oh my gosh, that's so good. Okay, that that was just a complete rant for no reason. It's good, we, but you need anyway, to get the ratio back. Well, yeah, the action is the juice. Anyway, that was ins and outs. Thirty-one through forty of AFI Top One Hundred for Grand Canyon. I am Braden Shaw. We'll see you next week. Peace.